We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined this week by a guest I am excited to talk chess openings with. He is a top Dutch trainer, chess player, opening theoretician, and prolific author. He's well known for his 14-volume new in chess series called Secrets of Opening Surprises and has recently released a meaty new book called How to Outprepare Your Opponents, forward by Grandmaster Anish Giri. Uh, I just finished it yesterday, as luck would have it. I learned a lot. There's just so many opening ideas and thoughts, and I'm excited to discuss them with our guest. And welcome to the show. I am Yuron Bosch. Welcome, Yuron. Thank you very much, Ben. Yes, and thanks for all the kind words. Yeah, I'm excited. And listeners, we're doing this by phone. I hope it sounds okay. In the test, it sounded just fine, but uh, just wanted to give a heads up. 
And we are recording this here on July 22nd. And the news of the week, of course, is that Magnus Carlsen made it official that he will not be defending his title, as anyone listening already knows and maybe even already heard me discuss. But we have not heard our guest Euron's thoughts on it, and he actually wrote an amazing chapter about Magnus's approach to openings. So I'd like to to discuss that chapter. But first, Euron, just as a chess trainer, chess professional, and chess fan, what was your reaction to the Magnus news? Well, okay, let's say as a chess fan, I, I am disappointed um, I think Magnus is such a fantastic player and such a great world champion. And um, really, the world championship is a, is a great asset to the chess world, I think. Um, I mean, it's, it's our most popular, uh, uh, well, tournament match uh, thing. And um, yeah, you, you really want to see the best player in the world championship match, I guess. But uh, okay, I guess it's good news for Ding Li Ren that he gets to play a match for the title against uh, Nepomniachi, right? Yeah, it will be fun to see Ding in, ap- in action. And yeah, it's a very compelling match. Um, but I w- as <laughs> listeners know, I was disappointed as well. Now, were you surprised? Where A lot of people had different opinions on how much to believe Magnus. Where did you come down, Yaron? Yeah, <laughs> good question. Um, I guess he's been very consistent, actually. So from that point of view, it, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise. I mean, he has uh, voiced his opinion many times before, I think, about how stressful this World Championship match is, uh, how stressful they are, and, uh, well, that he's not really enjoying uh, playing them, whereas he really enjoys playing chess. I mean, this is really quite obvious, and I think, you know, when I... Maybe I should say this. Um, when I was planning the book, um, originally, um, I think these first eight chapters, they were all in, in the outline for my book. And as I was writing, um, it suddenly struck me that Magnus is really the supreme example of how to outprepare your opponent. And this is why I, I added this chapter later on to, uh, well, to the, to the plan for the book, actually. Um, and I, I think maybe there's, there's one other aspect for Magnus not playing the world championship. Um, if you remember, um, well, he was of course, supremely successful playing against the uh, young, uh, Nepomniachi the last time. Um, but when you saw Magnus playing in the Tata Steel tournament, which was just after the match, he was brimming with opening ideas which I think we're all um, uh, getting back to his world championship preparation. So actually, it will be interesting to see whether he can keep up the same level of opening preparation without playing um, the world championship matches. It will. I mean, I felt like your book, that chapter about Magnus tied your book together nicely. And if anything, it made me feel like reading the chapter made me feel like he's he's going to be more creative going forward. He can focus less on these these few topical lines at the elite mm-hmm. level and experiment a bit more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, also true. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, that's the thing about Magnus, isn't it? That he can um, that he can really switch, or that he can do it all. Right? He can play both these surprising lines, or or or. Um, uh, leave the main path, uh, you know, at the, at the earliest possible moment. 
Um, but he's also a, a, a master in, let's say, the Rui Lopez or whichever mainline um, y- y- you want to talk about. Yeah, I, I definitely. I mean, I've come around to the point of view that Magnus's openings, at least at some point, were underrated. But but your book uh, really drove home that point. Um, what do you think people misunderstand about Magnus's approach to openings, if anything, Yaron? Uh, good question. Um, um, of course, uh, modern chess is is so different from what it was before. Um, we had the computer and we had these really powerful engines. And uh, I think this is one of the things that I'm writing about. Um, uh, if you think about, let's say, Anish Giri or Fabiano Caruana, um, they are so perfect, perhaps, in, in using the computer, um, uh, w- which is helping them to create new ideas, um, they have these huge opening files, and and Magnus is well at least giving the impression that this is not his entirely at least his cup of tea. Um, but at the same time, he is so successful in getting his opponent in the territory where he wants him to be, um, and and that is really what my book is about. And and. Um, Am I answering your question now? Or? Yeah, no, no, I think, I think you are. I mean, he, he has, I think, a less concrete approach than someone like uh, Grandmaster Anish Giri, um, who, who wrote in your intro, he writes, how to out-prepare your opponent is the question that's on the mind of every chess player. For me personally, opening preparation is the aspect of the game that stands central to how I perceive the entire struggle. Due to my obsessive passion for chess openings, I end up trying to rationally justify the endless pursuit of opening knowledge, telling myself that I figure out the key to out-preparing my opponents. I will crack the enigma code of the game as a whole. So to me, Iran, it seems like um, Magnus has kind of the opposite view, but I think what people un- misunderstand is they think they think that that means he's not working on openings and he's working very hard on openings. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas he's he's of course he's working on openings and his knowledge in that field is incredible and his um, okay this is another aspect of of the the chapter on on Magnus of course but the width and the breadth of his approach is is stunning of course i mean he can play any first move with white um and if he plays d4 he can go for main lines but he can just as easily play uh, let's say the london or you know what whatever sideline uh, you want to use but and the same goes for one e4 but at the same time if he's black <laughs> <laughs> There's the same <laughs> breath uh, in his in his uh, approach, um, and uh, I think he's he's really gearing it towards his opponent and towards a situation, um, which should be the core strategy, I guess, if you want to well out prepare your opponent. Yeah. And for listeners, of course, most of us would never have that breadth of opening knowledge. So we will be discussing uh, more practical lessons for the 
for the mm-hmm. uh, the human player, the the uh, amateur <laughs> player. Um, yeah, and and on your point, Iran, I've heard uh, Peter Hein Nielsen say that often when you, you know, even being the one that prepares the lines for Magnus, he says often when he sits down to play, he doesn't know what first move Magnus is going to make, and that's his trainer. So good luck, good luck to his opponents in predicting it. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> No, you're right. Yeah. Magnus it's it's breathtaking. Yeah. Um this is true. But um it it's 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 not as if he is not able to to um uh, uh have the, the Guri approach or the Caruana approach, right? It it's it's that he encompasses um it all in a way, yeah? Yeah. Um, and, which is the great thing about Magnus, yeah. yeah. And it'll be interesting to see um, to see how he changes his approach without the world championship uh, backdrop. Um, now, yeah, and and maybe this is this was also the point that you were making, of course, which which is correct that in these world championship matches he probably feels less creative or or less able to. Um, uh, have fun in a way, yeah, yeah. In, in in the opening. Yeah. Um, whereas this is very much part of his entire approach to chess that he's he's enjoying what he is doing. He's enjoying his profession, um, while at the same time uh, having these fantastic results. Yeah, it'll be fun to see. And do you have any early impressions, uh, Yaron, about what we might see opening wise in a Ding Nepo match? Very early impressions, we should say. Oh wow! <laughs> I didn't think about this. Um, uh, Ding strikes me as a much more. Um, I, I mean, that's that's probably typically also the question that is on the, on the mind of the club player. But but he's a much more restricted player in a way, isn't he? Um, I mean, nearly always playing one e five when he's answering, having to answer one e four. Um, a very classical player. Um, with a narrow repertoire. Um, well, Nepo was using this strategy as well, in a way, with Black, where, when he was very successfully in the candidates using the Petrov uh, to neutralize, well, not even neutralize, <laughs> <laughs> but even score <laughs> against uh, against his opponents there. Um, but what particular openings... Um, from Ding, you would expect a lot of 1c4, I guess. Um, and Nepo, I guess it's both e4, and, and but also knight f3 and so on. Yeah, so it's hard to say in what particular field they will... Uh, they will enter. Yeah, and the match, of course, is a ways away, slated for 2023, and Ding uh, did mention that he's hoping to broaden his repertoire, and Nepo seems to be working hard, so maybe he'll surprise us as well. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we are going to bring it back down to earth, and we've got lots of good listener questions (laughs) related to um, ways that we can work on our openings, and we will dig into them right when we get back from this break. Our friends at aimchess.com continue to roll out new features all the time. Some of the latest include a training room where you can work on tactics, advantage capitalization, blunder prevention, tons of stuff. They've got their own analysis board. And of course, they still have my favorite feature, 
which enables you to do large-scale review of your games and look for patterns that recur, review the mistakes that you've made in your games, set goals, and the list goes on. Uh, Aim Chess is well worth checking out, and if you decide to subscribe, please use the code PERPETUAL30 or use the link in the show description to save 30% on aimchess.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And we are back. And what we are going to discuss, of course, is the major topic of Yaron's book. Yaron's book is quite advanced. I mean, Yaron's very strong. I am um, lots of uh, GM scalps on his resume, lots of uh, tangles with uh, top Dutch players in particular. So there's lots to learn from his book. But we're going to try to uh, draw as broad lessons as possible for as wide an audience. And we're going to start with one of the ageless opening questions, Yaron. Narrow or wide repertoire? What should we choose? <laughs> <laughs> okay, first of all, this is an excellent question, of course. This, this is a, a listener question, right? Yeah. Um, and um, Yeah, let me read the question and do it full justice. <laughs> all right, sure. Uh, yeah. Just, uh, yeah. So... So this is from friend of the pod, Chris Wainscott, who says, over the years, I've heard some conflicting advice. On the one hand, I've heard it said that players should play a narrow set of openings in order to learn to learn them more thoroughly. On the other hand, I've heard it said that players should switch openings from time to time in order to learn to play different structures. So my questions are, do you recommend either of these options? And two, if you believe a player should switch, how often should that switch be made? And then next, do you believe that an opening repertoire should necessarily have related structures? And there's one more question, but let's stop there for now. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and remember all these questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me see, because there's really, uh, there are many ways in which these questions could be answered. And I, I think, uh, I mean, in a way, Chris perhaps could have written my book yes. because <laughs> <laughs> I'm addressing these, these questions. And um, uh, I think if you read the book carefully, you will see what my personal answer would be to these questions. And my personal answer would be that I think it's a good idea to switch. And um, with with switching, I mean uh, to vary your openings, sometimes play mainline openings, sometimes play um, a surprising sideline and really mix it in this way. Um, but this is my personal answer to myself as a chess player. Um, uh, also, I need, I think I personally need to switch between openings just to have fun playing chess. I mean, I'm not a professional chess player, so uh, on the one hand, the result is important for me, on the other hand, I should have fun playing chess as well. And I hope that for many club players, this is the same, of course. I mean, I'm sure that everybody wants to um, 
have a decent result. And at the same time, you also want to have fun playing chess, I, I guess. Um, well, I, uh, I could stop you there for a second if you want, Jeroen, because I wrestled sure. I wrestled with this as well, and I did think you had a lot of good insights in your book. But I think what a lot of club players, I mean, it, it always comes down to opportunity cost. And I think like you in your book, you have a very wide repertoire on display. You, you I mean, you've been obviously writing your Secrets of Opening Surprises series. You've had your finger on the pulse of openings for decades now so i think you're in a unique situation whereas um even as you call yourself a non-chess professional but someone who really knows um a wide breadth of ideas i think for a lot of um a lot of club players and i'd even put myself in this category in theory we'd like to play a lot of openings but winning is more losing more fun than losing and we just feel like when we sit down at the board at least again at least i feel this way i just feel like there are certain openings i know well enough where they increase my probability of winning and it would take a lot of work to catch up those o- to catch up those others. So, uh, any way to square that circle, you're on. Yeah, um, I was almost going to say, um, and and this is based on conversations I've had or or, or lessons I've uh, attended from um, someone who approached chess in a psychological way, and um, she was saying that. There's really, um, when you play chess, there is a triangle actually involved. And the triangle um, is between uh, results, uh, learning, and having fun. Um, And ideally, um, there's a balance there. Uh, Because nobody likes losing all his games, (laughs) but learning a lot. Right. Or, or, or <laughs> but it, okay, maybe winning all your games is sort of great, and and but without fun and without learning, okay, eh? <laughs> yeah. maybe this is the best of the three options uh, in a way. But ideally, there is this balance. Um, but let's come back to the question: Should you have this narrow um, opening repertoire? And and of course, I, I realize that. Uh, for club players, um, you are limited in time, that you have a limited amount of time to prepare your openings and so on and so forth. At the same time, the computer enables you to do all of this so much faster and it's it has become so much easier to uh, simply play a new opening um, than it was, let's say, 30 years ago. Um, when it took so much more time even to, to um, gather all the material, uh, let alone uh, the methods of, of studying chess have become so much easier. Um, still, uh, maybe I should say at this moment, um, I am also coaching the Dutch women team at the, um, well, I, I, w- I will do so at the next uh, Olympiad, which is uh, well, actually, in almost a couple of days, yeah. it starts in uh, in India. Um, but I've been doing so also in, in, in previous years. And um, uh, to understand, uh, this team consists of five women, of which four are playing uh, each round. Uh, this means that I need to assist four players every day, 
for the next round in, in whom will they play, what opening will they choose, um, can I help them, you know, preparing a specific line or not. And the really interesting thing is that, and, um, and I think this is something that all trainers and coaches are concerned with, um, that none of these uh, preparations are the same. Um, each is an individual in their own right. And um, it shouldn't be my approach to the opening that is dictating the course of the opening preparation, but it should be, well, in this case, her uh, particular strengths and weaknesses. Um, and that means that for one player, um, they will have perhaps, you know, very professional opening files and they will use me as a kind of sounding board. You know, uh, do you think I should play the Knight or, for, or should I go for the Karokan against this particular opponent? And then maybe which line uh, and so on and so forth. But somebody else will say, okay, I, I you know, I, just, I only play the Karokan and that's it. Uh, <laughs> and then there's no other choice, yeah? You simply have to go there and um, you go for the narrow approach. And this is also fine, only you have to realize the risks in both approaches. Um, so uh, coming, really coming back to <laughs> the, uh, the Chris's question, uh, wasn't it? Um, it's really quite hard to give one particular advice if you don't know the player. Um, if you haven't seen his games, if you haven't spoken to him on what are his preferences and so on and so forth. Um, so coming back to the question, you know, do you re recommend either of these options? I think ideally, especially in these modern times, I would say it's better to switch from time to time or at least to have a... a a wider variety of openings available. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that for him this is the best choice. And you could easily imagine that, you know, I don't know, playing like what he mentioned, uh, I think, is the Karakan and the Slav. Um, that could be a perfect combination, sure. And if these are your two openings, well, and you you are really happy sticking to them. Well, why not? Yeah, I, I do agree that it it can be different for different players. Um, and one one point I wanted to add about what I was saying about it's more fun to win. You can also you can select to begin with for uh, playing openings that you consider fun, so that you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. Since this is right, this is a hobby uh, for each of us. And another factor that comes into play that makes it hard to give uh, generic advice is the type of tournament you're playing, um, because mm -hmm. like how much your opponent can prepare varies widely. In these United States weekend tournaments, it's often they might have 10, 15 minutes to look at something, in which case I don't think a narrow repertoire is that big a deal. Right. And also, in which case, it's probably better to conserve your energy and not prepare at all. Right. Uh, but <laughs> take a walk in the park before your next game rather than, you know, frantically sit behind your laptop <laughs> trying in, te to, in 10 minutes to do something which is nearly impossible. Yeah. To do, yeah. To do a good job then. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. but then in stuff like the Lee Chess 45 45 League, as a uh, 
recent adult improver guest, Dr. Nicholas Vasquez, talked about you find out your opponent well in advance, you can prepare. And then, of course, there's also the weekly, nightly games that are common in different cities where you know your opponent in advance. And obviously, as you get towards your level, uh, you're on, you're playing invitationals where you might know your opponent. And to me, that's where it's more important to have a varied repertoire. But, but I mean, honestly, you got to do what makes you happy. That's, that's, the, that's the, the bottom line. Yeah, sure. And also, there's another interesting aspect uh, um, involved in the, in the question that Chris was asking, because um, I think, if I see his point correctly, um, he's arguing that if a player should switch, how often should that switch be made? But that sort of assumes that you make a switch and then you forget about your old opening. But why should that be? I mean... You can keep a, you can keep your old line and play something new at the same time. I mean, there, there's no absolute need for you to throw away all the work you did in the past on an old opening. Um, yeah, you quote Dvoretsky on that very point in the book, right? Right. Yes. Correct. Oh, you've written the you've read the book really well. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's it's a really good point. That, I mean, it really resonated with me when you said that. And also, I mean, the point that that you made uh, earlier in our conversation and in the book as well that you can play the Karakhan and the Slav, but maybe have two different lines within it, so that if you do feel like you might be a sitting duck, at least they don't know which exact line you're going to play. Um, and it might be a little easier because you do know the structures, so you're not playing something entirely different. So you might save some sort of. Um, yeah. um, you might feel familiar enough to experiment within the Carol Khan more than you would just to go from Carol Khan to double king pawn or something like that. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so yeah, lots of uh, lots of insights there. And of course, Chris, this is a timeless question for a reason. It could be debated endlessly. Uh, let's finish up Chris's uh, series here with his last question, which was. Uh, which I haven't read yet, which is if you could walk through listeners through how you would help a club level player select a repertoire. Okay, yeah, also a very good question. Um, in part, it, 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 I answered it, I think, um, in in how I was helping the Dutch women uh, preparing for games. I mean, for the club player, it's it's the same thing. I would want to see his games, and I would want to... Um, at least talk to him, you know, what does he like, what, what is it that he doesn't like, um, where do you see your own strengths and weaknesses, do you want to learn something new, is, is that, you know, part of your opening approach, or, or would you rather, you know, stick to your old guns, and but learn them really well? Um, so again, I can see very much the the desire to have a very clear answer, you know, to a question. You you, you want your trainer perhaps to to tell you, okay, let's play uh, the the Sicilian dragon, you know, and <laughs> and this is what you should do. Um, uh, I think the job of the trainer or the coach is is to to um, to get into the mind of of your uh, pupil. And uh, uh, and help him rather than um, dictate what the choice should be. Um, yeah, so helping a club level player, um, you know, this club level player. Not everybody um, 
has a trainer, of course, available or, or is willing to put the time or, or effort or the money into uh, hiring someone to coach you or whatever. But you cannot do the same thing, of course, with a friend from your club. I mean, why not work together, um, discuss things? How do you see me? What do you see in my games? Where do I go wrong? Uh, where are my weaknesses? It, it could be quite useful to have someone else's opinion on your play. And perhaps you're finding out things that are, um, you know, maybe your friend from, from your chess club sees you in a completely different way than you thought <laughs> whom you you are as a player, right? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good point. And yeah, the value of having a, a sparring partner is, I mean, it it's important in many ways. But yeah, bouncing opening ideas is definitely... Um, Definitely another good reason to to try to find someone that you can work with, even if uh, you're not able to hire a coach. Um, and I want to get to the next question you're on because it's quite related. Um, and this one is from your Dutch compatriot. He's a Dutch chess player, and he basically dared me to try to pronounce his name <laughs> in, in, in a <laughs> side right, message. Uh, so the first name is Aryan. Um, possibly. And the last name is, I, he said I could skip it if you want, but I'll try. It's uh, Doevendans, D-O-E-V-E-N-D-A-N-S. How would you say that in Dutch, uh, Jeroen? Um, okay, I will. Uh, the first name pronunciation was perfect. Then. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> and the surname is um, Doevendans. Okay. All right, there you have it, Duvendans. Um, anyway, let's All get right. to his question. <laughs> he asks, is there something like an ideal repertoire for older intermediate club players around 40 with a job and kids who still have the desire to improve? Should we play practical mainlines because they're rich, fun, and instructive? Or should we embrace a low theory system uh, because our memory isn't the best and we have limited study time that is better spent on other areas of the game? So this is another one covered in your book, we should say, and timeless, of course, often debated. What do you think, Yaron? Yes, yes. And I think we could talk at least for an hour <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> about Aryan's questions. Um, okay, also very much related to what Chris was saying earlier on, of course, uh, as well. Um, th th there's a funny, uh, um, which I can understand actually, uh, a kind of paradox in his question where he's saying um, the older, uh, well, I'm actually much older than 40, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the older chess player uh, who has a job and kids uh, and then the desire to improve, yes? Because it it, uh, it strikes me that in the first part of the question there is this um, the thought that I don't really have the time perhaps energy to spend, the, uh, to spend on chess but on the other hand, there is this thing about I want to improve as a chess player, right? Yeah. Um, okay, this is, of course, the tough part is if you want to improve, you have to put in a few hours of study. You know, there, there's nothing to it, uh, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's, it's, there is no easy way. Um, and I understand, the, you know, I really understand this question. <laughs> What do you do, you know, if you have so limited time? Um, you should be honest with yourself. I mean, um, at the same time, he's saying, 
should we play practical should we play the main lines or this low theory system it's not necessarily the case that this is the exact distinction because there are main lines and main lines if you are playing the sicilian nidorf and the grunfeld indian then i think this is not an ideal combination with um well, perhaps being 40, having a yeah. <laughs> full-time job and kids and so on, because these are so theory-heavy openings that it's going to be tough to keep up with all the theory and with all the novelties and so on and so forth. At the same time, this, of course, also depends on your relative level and the level of your opponents. I mean, it may easily be the case that they also cannot keep up with the... Uh, pace uh, that theory is holding. So maybe you're still, even then, you could still be fine by playing the Grunfeld. Um, then there is, let's say, uh, Drew Lopez, if, uh, you know, which is one of the examples in, the, in my book as well. Um, clearly, you're playing a main line, um, but it's 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 really is different playing the Rio Lopez as compared to the Sicilian Nidorf. And of course, even here, I should be more precise because if I'm saying I'm playing the Rio Lopez, the Marshall Gambit, then again, we're into the field of a theory heavy opening where you need to learn a lot of files, probably by heart to keep it up. However, if you're playing a closed Rui Lopez you might be fine, you know, with a limited uh, <laughs> a, a, a limited time you're having to study theory. Um, so that's the distinction even within main lines, let's say. And uh, let's say you're playing a classical Queen's Gambit, and again, you're not going to be hit by a major novelty that's going to kill your entire uh, variation which could be the case if you're playing the Grunfeld, for example. Um, and then, yeah, what are low theory systems? Um, there is a risk there, of course. Um, if low theory systems are exciting but dubious sidelines, it's possible that uh, <laughs> you can play this in a couple of games, then there is a refutation is known, and you're going to have to switch to another uh, right. low-key surprising variation, which after a couple of games gets refuted as well. And again, you have to switch. You may wonder, of course, in, in which of these choices you end up <laughs> spending more time studying theory. Uh, in the one case where you have forced yourself to switch uh, almost continuously from sideline to sideline, or um, if you made the practical choice to go for a mainline opening, which perhaps is, isn't the Nidorf, but could be some other mainline. I mean, the French defense is also possible, of course, or the Carocan or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of good advice there, Yaron. There was a couple points I want to highlight. One was something you mentioned in your book, um, this idea of thinking about the price of a move, which is also something I interviewed uh, Peter Svidler for the How to Chess podcast, and it was a concept he talked about 
when it comes to time management, but I also think it can be valuable in, as you wrote, constructing your opening repertoire, because as you say, in like the Grunfeld or the Nydorf, not only are they theoretical, but they're so dynamic that you better not make a mistake. Whereas the Queen's Gambit and the Roy Lopez might have a ton of theory, but if it's a more closed position, the price of a move might be lower. And that might mean even as a working 40-something dad, you can experiment within it or kind of uh, fumble around in it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and personally, I think I, I described this in the book as well. I had this feeling when at some point I decided to switch from one E4 to one D4 where I had the feeling um, when I was playing one E4, you know, usually the play is more sharp, more concrete. Um, so if I didn't know the theory so well, um, I was running the risk of, uh, even with white, uh, to end up in a worse position if I'd made only one mistake, perhaps. Um, or I could make a mistake and... Uh, it's it's not even the problem is your opponent equalizes, but he gets to draw the game immediately, for example. Whereas when I was playing 1D4, and well, it's possible that it's only a personal feeling, but I had the feeling that um, in cases where I didn't know the theory so well, okay, my opponent equalized, but we just had a normal position and we continue the game, you know, but I didn't run an immediate risk of um uh having a really bad game or or uh an instant draw for example um and and well this was at least my personal experience and that doesn't mean that i you know i i still play 1e4 and i still enjoy playing 1e4 so uh only the character of of even these these first moves uh, the character of the play is different and the price of a move. Yeah, what you wrote, in, and that resonated with me as a 40-something who, I have to admit, switched from <laughs> a lifelong E4 player to primarily one night F3. Um, I was right. I was really nodding yeah. my head when I read that part because I, I, I'm often at the 2100 level finding positions where I might not know exactly how to play a certain structure, but my opponent doesn't either. Um, and as you alluded to in the E4 openings, the opponents seem to know it quite well and it's quite concrete. So, um, I apologize to anyone who hates playing against that stuff for encouraging it, but at least for me, I found it, <laughs> I found it effective. Um, and I can still play E4 if, if, you know, if the mood strikes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And one other yeah. point I wanted to highlight, Ron, you could tell me if you agree with this or not, but, uh, to what Aryan's asking, what I had to do when I really got back into tournaments a year ago was my, I felt like my whole full stop, my both colors repertoire was a mess. And I decided to start with black to really, and in, with black, I think in some cases, you just have to learn more theory. And then that leaves you with white. You can be slightly more experimental. Um, you can uh, make things up a little more or at least do that second because again, the price of a move starting is lower. Like it's, you know, it's less of a crime to not realize an advantage or to get less of an advantage than to just be like in trouble right from the beginning, which is more likely to happen with black. Do you think that's reasonable or um, uh, do you have any experience? No, absolutely. That's reasonable. I think what you're saying is that you have more leeway as white than you have as black, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think that's absolutely true. Um, it's interesting that, that, these, you know, these really strong grandmasters, um, that they 
nowadays they try this different approach, which is at this, you know, with black, they, they play a fairly narrow opening repertoire, which is very concrete um, and which is geared towards making a draw or equalizing as black. Uh, well, Nepo's adoption of the Petrov is a perfect example there. And then with white, they they try um, to, to play as wide a variety of openings as possible to try and 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 um, find a playable position. Let's say, yeah. But this is really the, the super grandmaster level, and this has almost nothing to do, I guess, with with the club player. Uh, I don't know how you see this, Ben, but uh Yeah. So so I can I can you know, what you're saying resonates with me uh, because what you're saying is with white I have more leeway to um to play something. Yeah? Yeah. Simply. Whereas with black I really have to take care because Otherwise, I might get killed in this Sicilian or whatever, right? Yeah, this is yeah, ex- mm-hmm. exactly. And and when I recently interviewed David Howell, he he made the same point about the the narrow repertoire that someone like Nepo was showing. And he was saying even at his level, at the super GM level, he was thinking maybe maybe I don't need to experiment as much as I thought. You know, Hakaru, Dingleren, and uh, and Nepo are somewhat predictable with with black at least. Um, and he he he's thought even at his level now obviously they're playing uh as you say they're really angling for a draw whereas at the club level it might not be that you're angling for a draw but at least that uh that you're you're narrowing the scope of of what you need to do mm-hmm. but possibly i i guess as a club player uh you just want to get a game right yeah i mean and you, you you just want to play chess yeah uh, but still, you want to do it on your own terms and on your territory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we got to take one more break, and then we have a one more opening-related question for you from friend of the podcast, Han Shoot. So we will be right back. Listeners, as I record this, the chess world's attention is turned to the Chess Olympiad, one of my favorite tournaments of all just Tons of strong players all under one roof representing their countries. And if you are a Chessable Pro member, we've got good news for you. National Master Brian Tillis is making a course based on the games of the Olympiad. I could tell you from past experience, there's tons and tons of tactics flowing from these games. You just have so many players playing each other, varying levels, that there's always lots to learn. And Brian is an excellent teacher. So if you're not a pro member, you might want to take this opportunity to sign up to receive that and other perks. And if you are, be sure to grab it, as well as the other new courses that Chessable's dropping all the time, including a new one on the Triangle Slav from Christoph Selecki and Erwin Lemie, um, new courses from Judith Polgar, and the list goes on. So be sure to go to chessable.com and check out what is available both for free and for purchase. And we are back. And Yaron, I believe that you have a long history with uh, Han Shoot because both of his daughters were top uh, Dutch girl players. Is this? Can you confirm this rumor? Oh, this rumor I can confirm for <laughs> sure. Yes, he has two very talented uh, daughters, both of them playing um, uh, really very well and winning many national uh, championships. Um, in in different uh, age categories, uh, it's especially Lisa Schut, uh, whom I got to know well, um, 
and I also had the, the pleasure of, of uh, having training sessions with her and coaching her as she was a member of the Dutch uh, women team. Um, and really, uh, Lisa's level of opening preparation was very, very professional, I can say. Um, partly also because, um, well, she was an early talent and she worked with the um, famous trainer Vladimir Chuchilov. Imagine. Um, yeah, yeah and, and she, I think she kind of adopted his approach towards the opening as well. So my preparations, uh, when Lisa was part of the, the Dutch women team, um, this was really very interesting also. I mean, she would have perfect professional opening files and she would use me as a kind of sounding board. You know, what do you think about my opponent? Should I go here or should I go to here? Should I go there? Um, where do her strengths lie? Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, that's uh, <laughs> you're right. And I, so I can absolutely confirm this. And I think Han is uh, uh, really very active as a trainer and coach as well, isn't he? Yeah, he is. And in I, the United States. And I know he's a fan of your Secrets of Opening Surprises series as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, and you can tell that he enjoys uh, opening research by checking out his chessable courses. Um, exactly, yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, let's get to his questions, which I think are fun ones. So um, Han asks, he says, most games by club players are decided by tactics. At the same time, tactics flow from a superior position, as said by Bobby Fischer. How do you think club players should approach opening preparation beyond applying good opening principles like the three golden rules of the opening in the chess steps method? And his second question, and we can take these one by one if you prefer, but I'll go ahead and read it is which black openings would you recommend for club players against d4 and e4 uh, actually let's stop and do the first one first um <laughs> all right yeah which is actually not so easy to answer also yeah um although in, in part it, it comes back to i think what Aryan and chris were also asking yeah um it's it, actually it's, it's good because we are talking all the time about the club player but uh who is this club player is he old is he young is he there, there might be a difference here as well um when you are young for example i think and especially when you are young in in modern chess times it makes sense to um play a lot of different openings and to simply learn to play different structures um and develop your chess in this way um, I think this was also a point that uh, Chuchilov was making um, when he was arguing that really the study of, you know, the modern chess opening, it's, it's, it's not about, well, it, it is partly about, you know, remembering files and remembering moves and so on, but you're doing much, much more than that you are really working on your chess you are working on the middle game perhaps in certain cases you are even working on the end game already when you are studying a particular opening um, and for example for very young players i would really stimulate them to play gambits for example because it, it's it's good when you do this at an early age you get the feeling for the initiative um when do you have compensation for a sacrificed pawn, when not, um, and so on. So um, there are some differences even within the, let's say, club level 
player, you know, what type of player are you, where are you in your chess career, what do you still want to achieve or not. Um, yeah, and I think it's not just young um, players, but newer players, I think, to your point, can benefit all, from, playing, yes. from playing gambits. Fair point, absolutely, yes, yes. Um, you mean the, 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 the late developers and the... the or, or those that are getting late into chess. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I... You're right. Um, yeah, sorry. Well, I was just going to echo that I had highlighted the same the same sentence you just mentioned from Chuchilov, that uh, working on openings is synonymous with studying chess, that they're not, they're not separate. I mean, I, I would echo, and you mentioned this in your book, don't just memorize lines, but if you're looking at whole games of the openings you like you're 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 not just studying openings exactly yes and maybe this is you know also partly an answer to hans question um i mean beyond applying good general opening principles which is actually great advice of course from han um the, the same goes for model games in in certain openings um I don't know if you are, let's say, which is actually would would not be a bad choice. Let's say you want to play, you are young or, or, or <laughs> um, uh, fairly new to chess and you want to play something against the Sicilian and you decide to play the bishop c4 lines against, you know, different Sicilian variations. It would make a lot of sense to study the games of Robert Fischer. I figured you were going there, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and and you know perhaps they are no longer theoretically that relevant, and ways have been found by Black to neutralize these lines. But still, I mean, there's so much to learn from ch chess-wise that this would be great, of course. Yeah, and a couple other tricks that, of course, we've have come up before on the podcast. You can use something like the Lee Chess Opening Explorer. If you're looking for illustrative games within an opening and then it'll show the mm -hmm. games, look for names that recur. If you see someone that plays a certain line yep. that you're playing, uh, try, try to find that. And then obviously in something like a chessable course, they provide illustrative games and that's always a, a good start as well. Um, so let's get to Han's second question, which is uh, which black openings would you recommend for club players against D4 and E4? Personally, I would choose the Dragon and King's Indian if I started playing today because it's fun to attack. I would switch to the Grunfeld and Nidorf once my ELO reached 2000. Um, so he's curious, both if you, if you were advising a kid and an adult chess player, what black repertoire you would uh, pick? Yes. Uh, okay, uh, again, a very good question, of course. And again, you know, I would... Ideally, I, I would go for an individual approach and an individual advice. But, you know, I completely agree with Han on the Dragon, actually. Um, especially, no, as kids, especially as kids, I, I guess it would be very useful. I think traditionally in the Soviet Union, it was normal for the young talents to play the Dragon, if I recall uh, I think Halefman, uh, Tivyakov, they all played the dragon uh, early on. Yeah, the dragon is always a fun choice. And uh, my friends, um, 
Greg and Jennifer Shahadi both came up with the dragon and became fierce attacking players, uh, I think partially due to due to that uh, muscle memory. Now, what about against D4, Yaron? Or if you have a bit to add about the dragon, please go ahead. Yeah, no, I agree that the, the dragon is great. It's it's great, of course, because of the, the attack and the counterattack um, uh, things that you are learning, but also the the, the exchange sacrifice, um, the standard sacrifices on G4, and so on and so forth. So yeah, absolutely, the dragon is uh, a very useful opening, um, especially as kids to uh, to start with. Um, against one D4, Han was suggesting the King's Indian. Which is interesting because, uh, to my mind, the King's Indian is a really difficult opening um, because, on the one hand, you can end up in these very closed positions, and on the other hand, the positions can be really open as well. So it 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 would strike me as quite difficult for a young kid to to learn. On the other hand, and this is the the, the my counter example would be, for example, uh, Luke van Veli, whom. I knew personally from a from a young age who always played the King's Indian, as did Kasparov, of, of course, when he was young. Um, and he did perfect uh, with this. So uh, I guess the King's Indian is fine as well. Um, but an opening like the Semislav, for example, could also be um, a great choice, perhaps. And then, you know, studying the games from Anand and take it from there. Yeah, I do feel it's. I've noticed I'm playing any active player right now is going to be playing a lot of like uh, precocious teenagers and kids. Um, and I've <laughs> noticed a lot of them are playing the King's Indian. I think that coaches, because they often favor tactics, they go towards the King's Indian, they gravitate in, yes. in that direction in terms of what to recommend. But I agree that it's a decent, but some, it's not the same as the Sicilian, it's not as free flowing as the Sicilian. But and I don't have a ton of experience in the semi slav, but I do think that d four and and uh, close setups do present a much bigger challenge for finding a dynamic repertoire. Right. Yes. Okay. You could also think about the queen's gambit accepted, for example, which tends to be um, le- tends to lead to much more open play, perhaps. Um, Okay, but there are many Indians, of course, which are uh, highly playable. But it's true that something like the Nimzo Indian is strategically very complex, as I think is the King's Indian. Um, The Volga Gambit is perhaps not a bad choice. Um, uh, You're playing a Gambit, but it's strategically sort of sound, (laughs) I would guess. (laughs) And you can learn a lot of long-term... Uh, things from playing uh, the Volga, or uh, uh, I don't know that that's not the name. I should say uh, the Benko Gambit is uh, perhaps more resonant with the, the United States. Yeah, it is more commonly known as the Benko here. Yeah, and even though it's yeah, yeah and you do sack a pawn, but yeah, it's not like these wide open positions. Although I do think it's um it's it's a good opening uh, for club players in particular. Um, mm-hmm. Great. Well, this has been a lot of great opening insight. Um, I want before we wrap up, if you're okay with it, Yaron, I want to hear about a few career highlights. But do you have any closing advice about openings? I mean, as you mentioned, we could talk about this stuff for hours. But uh, I mean, so much of this is covered in in your book. So, but do you have any just sort of closing bullet point type advice you could give? I'm putting you on the spot here. 
Oh, yeah, you, you are putting me on the spot, but that doesn't matter. Um, uh, in a way, perhaps it's... it's uh, um, what I wrote in the final chapter, which I called Frequently Asked Questions. Um, there I gave a lot of advice of things that you could do. You know, how do you create your opening repertoire? Which sources can you use? Uh, creating opening files, that sort of thing. Um, but maybe a, a special one, because it's it's one that a friend of mine who read the book then said, oh, wow, I, I really like that example, is while you are studying your openings, ask yourself questions. Why do they play this move? Why not a different move? What is the reason? If you study like this, you will understand much more of what is going on and in in the book i'm mentioning this example from a actually it's a game from uh, again vladimir chuchilov who um who was beating viktor michalevsky early on in, in an opening variation um and it's a great example of how chuchilov had already prepared the opening by asking himself questions at home while while he was studying. Um, and this is something that, that we all should do, I guess. You know, not, not, not automatically assume um, uh, that the, the move that they always play is, is the correct move, or at least ask yourself, why is that the case? And it's also interesting, sometimes if you switch the engine on, you can see that very often it's, it will suggest a move that hasn't been played on the human level <laughs> uh, all that often before. Yeah. And that's interesting. And, and it won't be a bad move, you know, if the engine is suggesting it. Yeah, that does happen happen fairly often. Yeah. And that, that is a good, good closing advice. I often find myself quoting uh, Ganguly when I interviewed him said, never, never, I mean, many people have said this, but never memorize a move that you don't understand. Um, yeah. And it's so mm -hmm. easy to, to fall prey to that. Um, you know, when we have limited time and we're we're trying to drill our opening lines. Um, so, Yaron, you've got some great stories in the book, you know, uh, in, within the realm of discussing openings. I mean, you've had some really impressive results beating Sokolov. Uh, you beat Jan Timmen with Black. You have a great story about uh, beating the legend Lubojevic. Um, what what are your favorite OTB chess memories from from all these all this time training and competing? Um, wow, my favorite. Okay, I, I, this, this game is not in the book, but I, I also uh, beat Jan Timan. I think you mentioned it just now, yeah? But uh, I, I beat him in one game. This is, of course, great, you know, as a Amazing, touch player. Yeah. If, you, if you're playing Jan Timan, you're already happy to play. Yeah. <laughs> Let alone to beat him. But uh, maybe it's the game you mentioned against Lebojevic, because he was really a childhood hero of mine. Um, you know, I, I would always play through his games because he played such exciting chess. And um, uh, I got to play him twice, actually. Um, once I was... Uh, I, in both games, I had the black collar. In one game, I played the Nimzo Indian, and we were kind of copying a Kasparov-Anand game, and it ended in a draw. He was very sympathetic after the game and so on. But then there's the game that is mentioned in the book. Um, it was the first time that I played with Black the Tarash uh, defense against 1d4. Um, 
and I had really studied the opening well. Um, there's this great book by uh, Harald Kahlhaak, um, which is called Die Tarasch-Verteidigung, which is German, you know, for the Tarasch defense. And, and he's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a great opening book because he's really explaining all the ins and outs and, and he goes far beyond uh, concrete chess moves. Um, so I had studied this, this book quite well. And then I ha had the opportunity to play uh, Labojevic, who was, as I said, my childhood hero, Okay, it, it's, it, it can happen on a particular day, of course, that you, uh, well, that you get to beat a great player. So that was my particular day. Amazing. <laughs> and I, I, I got to sacrifice the exchange. And, and had a, but what struck me really was how um, such a great sporting nature he had and how sympathetic he was after the game. You know, really, uh, you know, I could have easily imagined him to, you know, just shake hands and walk away in disgust and so on. But uh, quite the, the opposite, you know, he was so sympathetic after the game, discussing um, all the ins and outs and, and asking me questions about here and there. And um, so, yeah, that that is really a, a favorite memory. And as I said in the book, I was talking to Dutch Grandmaster Friso Nijboer later on, and he heard the story of how I played my first Tarash defense and beating Lebojevic. And then he said, yeah, it's you understand, Jeroen, that it's never going to be this great again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very realistic advice. And yeah. True, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Ben Fine Lebojevic is very high on the list of people I haven't interviewed that I'd like to. Uh, ben Feingold finds him very entertaining, and yes, oh yeah, you should absolutely do this if if he's willing. That would be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and I do think that there's a lesson for for us club players from uh, that story, Ron, and that like even though you were playing a grandmaster, you could have, I mean, a legendary grandmaster at that. You could have you could have backed out and said, you know what, I'll play the opening I know for this game and save the Tarash for another one. But you'd you'd been prepping it and you decided just to to let it fly and and it worked out. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and I think this holds true for all levels in chess. I think don't be afraid. You know, just play it. Just play what you. Uh, there is no need to hold back. Um, and I understand, of course, about, you know, really important games and so on and so forth. But, of course, this game against Lebojevic was also an important game. And you are right. I could have played, again, this Nimzo Indian or a Queen's Gambit or, or whatever. But I saw it as a great opportunity to um, test this opening that I had just studied. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, so that That is good advice for everybody in chess i think yeah great great, great story and a great and advice. you know uh, um often we will relate this to ourselves and we'll think oh i don't know all the theory and i, I you know and so on and so forth but <laughs> be assured your opponent also doesn't know all the theory <laughs> yeah he's also not aware of everything um you know, this, I, I just mentioned this game where I happened to beat Jan Timan, and he played three bishop b5 check in the Sicilian. Um, and I thought later on, you know, I was actually kind of relieved perhaps because 
he could have just played 3d4 and we would have gotten into a theoretical knight or for or you know something else i think i was planning to play the knight or uh, for that game and um you know he probably thought you know i'm going to avoid theory and so on and so forth it's uh, uh, you know on all levels you you have this aspect of chess where the opponent also doesn't always know everything uh, understands everything and so on and so forth um so really your advice is is excellent just go for it yeah now if i could only follow it (laughs) (laughs) um well you're on one last thing uh as you mentioned you're taking off in a matter of days to india to coach the dutch women's team by the time people hear this you will already be there um so what goes into that? Like you've mentioned, you'll be helping uh, each individual prep and tailoring to to their concerns. But how much have you done beforehand, and and how are you feeling about the trip? Just on a sort of more personal, getting ready to travel level. Um, yeah, getting ready to travel is is what I'm going to do for the next <laughs> couple of days because I didn't really <laughs> up until this moment. Okay, there was a lot of preparation involved by ways of, let's say, uh, obtaining visa for all the players, uh, the plane tickets, uh, arrangement of hotels, and so forth, and so on and so forth. I mean, the Olympiad is, of course, it's a, it's a great event, and it's, it's incredible how many countries, how many teams are taking part, of course. Uh, in the women competition alone, there are 162 uh, country teams, um, in the men's competition, I think it's, what, more than 180. Um, so it's a huge event, of course. Um, and India, of course, took up the organization um, just after the invasion of the Ukraine, um, when it was decided that the Olympiad could not be held, of course, in, in Moscow. Um, so they had little time to prepare, and I'm sure they uh, do everything they can to make it a great event. Um so yeah, from that point of view, I'm really looking forward to it. Did we have a lot of preparation before the Olympiad? No, we didn't in this case, unfortunately, but it, uh, uh, we could not arrange it uh, this time. Uh, on the other hand, we have exactly the same team as we had last year for the European Team Championship in uh, 2021. Um, so that's great. So I know all the players, uh, they know me, <laughs> um, I know their repertoires. So from that point of view, um, we are already, uh, prepared, let's say. Sounds, sounds good. And, um, and do you know like roughly what seed the Dutch women's team will be? Yes. Yes. They are, uh, 17th okay. at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So we'll, we'll, We'll try and get into the top 10, let's say. That's a good let's goal. make this our ambition. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Yaron, it's I, I wish you safe travels and uh, entertaining trip. Um, you know, there's so much folklore associated with the Olympiad. I'm always, uh, always a little jealous of uh, anyone going, and whether it be as a player or a trainer. And, and yeah, thanks for for all of your your opening insights. The book is called How to Out-Prepare Your Opponent. As always, uh, New in Chess has a free sample that you can check out if you go to their webpage. Um, ton, tons of uh, different opening ideas and insights within the book, uh, especially for, for more advanced players. So, th- so thanks again, you're on. 
Thank you very much, Ben, and also your listeners, of course, for the great questions. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Official one on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, But most of all, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you all on the next episode. Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.